Hello. This is uh, Nick Reffin, and uh, we are here to talk about my film, Drive. We are, and my name is Peter Bradshaw. I'm the movie critic of The Guardian in London, and I'm very pleased to say that I'm also going to be participating in this audio commentary. Which is very exciting in that I feel that Peter and myself have mentally corresponded over X amount of years through we his have. We have. views <laughs> on my work and my very respectful opinions of his opinions. Um, so maybe one day they'll make a movie about us, Peter. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, we can get into casting later on. But um, <laughs> Peter, I've always fancied Peter Sarsgaard. I don't know why. Um, okay. Yeah, I, I'm I'm really interested to get involved, to re-engage with this movie because I think this is the movie of yours that I found the most difficult to engage with. I I've got to admit it, I completely didn't get it at first. I think I've watched it three or four times. I didn't get it. I didn't. I I, I think I didn't understand it at first. Uh, I think it was something to do with the violence or something to do with the opacity of the movie, but. Now it's really, really grown in my mind. We can talk about it later on, but it's it's really grown in my mind. Well, that's that's good to hear. I think, you know, you always have to look at work as something that grows, because yeah, in a way, your reaction is is something I've heard multiple times, and I always say thank you very much. Yeah, because there is something very pleasurable in you know, penetrating the mind and just lying there or existing. And it doesn't really come to fruition until many years later. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, but as I say, and this is... that's what art is. Art is an experience that you, you know, you, um, you live with for the rest of your life. And then some years you hate it, some years you love it, and then you rediscover it. It's a bit like... I don't know, some of those great rock and roll bands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is, this is, this, the intro we're watching right now, I, I suddenly realize it's almost a, a kind of physical, non cerebral reaction to, I think it's the music, I think it's Cliff Martinez's kind of music, which is kind of has that, what I think of as like a sentinel pulse sort of throbbing away, almost as if it's part of the, part of the car. I, I really like that. I really like yeah. that music. Um, well, this was actually Johnny Jewel's uh, track. Oh, was it? oh okay. Um, right. But um, the idea was to, I mean, I can't drive a car. So how do you no, make a car look interesting? Yeah. And That's so funny. I, I don't drive either. Isn't that funny? <laughs> and, and, and so the idea of shooting the entire opening from inside the car yeah. was just this kind of aesthetic that I found like exciting because, you know, showing the car from the outside, besides, you know, that would take an awfully long time. There was also something more about this idea that LA people just float around in metallic objects. Yeah. And then once in a I while think... you get out and you do something and you get back into the metallic object and you carry on. 
I, um, yeah, and the metallic objects, I really like this, the sh as I understand. I mean, as I say, I don't drive. I know that it's a Chevy Impala, and the whole point of it is that it is an unobtrusive car. Um, I mean, when I was in L.A. a couple of years ago, I mean, I had to be ferried around in Ubers, which are exactly like this. I mean, they are an Uber. The Chevy Impala is a classic Uber car, along with a Toyota Prius. Right. Or certain kinds of Mercedes. They are kind of un, un, unobtrusive. Right. Almost as they are fading into the background of the city, like the kind of steel and glass of the city itself. They're not like kind of the great kind of rock and roll cars of, well, what, of, let's say, I don't know, Walter Hill or something like this, a kind of muscle car, which is. Which we'll come to later. We will yeah. visit the muscle car later. Um, okay. You know, which was also part of the dynamic of how to create the driver. You know, the driver needed his uh, extension. A little bit like one eye had his axe in Valhalla Rising. This was the reverse. Yes. This is, you know, yeah. an automobile. Yeah. So this is, um, again, what I love is the uh, almost ghost-like voice uh, that's been caught, that he's always listening with half an ear to uh, police tracking stations. And there's something, I, I think it's great, there's something almost ghostly uh, and uncanny, supernatural about that voice. Well, a lot of the kind of um, concept of the film, um, I mean, the final result of the movie was really based on like the Grimm's fairy tales. Um, right. right. I read a lot of Grimm's fairy tales for my kids over the years. and um, Right. I always liked that kind of aesthetics, and and the idea was like, how do you make a fairy tale in Los Angeles? Yeah, and everything that comes with that, because L.A. is such a a magical place, especially when it comes to the entertainment industry, because it has this, it's the history, rather than reality. Yeah, and so we yeah. live in these illusions and past dreams. Some are painful, some are pleasurable, but. The idea of L.A. being this fantasy landscape also because I didn't really know L.A. I'd only been there, you know, a few times and not seen all the possibilities, what it could do. So when I came to do the film, it was like I needed to be introduced to Los Angeles. And what better right. way to do that than, you know, together with Ryan and... Um, you know, who would really educate me of what L.A. was and all the surroundings around it. And it was just like I was just feeding off everything. Yeah. And, um, of course, using all that of being like, oh, I like this. Oh, I like that. Oh, this finds interesting. And then it was just intuitive, you know, how the film That's... was made. Uh, I shoot my films in chronologically order. Uh huh. Mm. So, um, so I can change things along the way, and right. um, there was a lot of changes, <laughs> but it was all for yeah. the better because you know it's like you can wake up in the morning and go, "What would I like to see today?" And then you yes. you work with your actors the same way of asking them what would they like to do today, because those are your extensions of who you are. You know, I'm. I'm very uh, self-absorbed when I work. It's all about me. But your actors, whether they're men or women, are your 
alter egos. They are, right. at least in, for me, an extension of myself. And what better than, you know, having Ryan Gosling hidden inside of you yeah. as the driver? I mean, I, <laughs> I wondered if you thought of him, if you thought of him almost as a kind of Mr. Hyde to your Dr. Jekyll, almost. Or, I mean, in a way that some some movie directors I think do have a leading man that they think is their projection or their avatar. I think that certainly I've been very fortunate having, you know, worked with Matt, you know, Matt Mickelson when I began yep. and then Tom Hardy and then Ryan and then uh, really Elle Fanning and you know, obviously recently also with, you know, Miles Teller. Miles Teller, yeah. But, um, you can say that making, uh, you know, this film at a certain time in my life, at the same time, Ryan making the film in his life, we kind of co-experience a radical change in our surroundings. And so it was a very intimate and intense and wonderful relationship that, you know, we will all travel with, you know, both mm. of us for the rest of our lives. And it's, it is, you know, in a way, um, you, there are certain things in your life that evolve you as a person and everything that you do. And obviously, you know, Drive was one of those experiences. Right. And, um, and here we are. We, we just crashed into the opening kind of credits. Um, and I again, I'm really struck by that pink. Uh, it's such a great color. Um, and I've read that it's all about, is it like John Hughes or what's, what's, what's happening with that color right there? Or is it about the pink, the pink motel or what's, 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 what's happening with that pink? Well, I'm colorblind. So I I'm can really... only see, you know, um, very extreme colors. Uh-huh. And, um, I don't really know what I can't see. I've been told what I can't see, but obviously I don't know what that is because I can't see it, but they can measure in my eyes. Right. But growing up in New York, uh, John Hughes' films were very much part of my um, experiencing the world. And uh, 16 Candles was probably my favorite. And so in a way, that kind of aesthetics and the the popness of the pink yeah you know uh <laughs> even pretty in pink which i remember seeing many times in the cinema um yeah. was kind of transported into this film um as a way to continue this um operatic feel that the film mm -hmm. needed to have you know that it was at the end of the day a fairy tale i mean you know, our protagonist walks around in a silver j satin jacket with a scorpion on its back. You know. Yeah, I, I was going to ask you about that. Did that is that a was that a design choice that you made, or or was that your costume costume person who? Was... Well, it's um, like everything. It's a collaboration, um, and you know, because that is what creativity is essentially. Um, yeah. Here's my good friend Hossein. Um, so. I, when I grew up in the 80s, I remember there were those kind of 
jackets that had satin sleeves. Remember that? Like, like, and they yeah. usually would have like college kind of jackets, and they would have some kind of animal, a sports animal, or something like yes. that for a sports yes. team on them. And when Ryan and I were talking about what kind of clothing, besides obviously the jeans, and Ryan had these boots that he had in mind that were very particular. Mm. Um, we talked about this idea that it could be interesting that he had some kind of animal on him. Um, that, you know, where in Valhalla Rising, one eye obviously has one eye. Yeah. So what, what, what could be his, his, his trademark? And so this idea of, of, of these types of bomber jackets with an yeah. animal on, and then the question was, well, what was going to be the animal? And of course, yeah. the satin was just the flamboyantness, and it helped to kind of give the texture of the operatic feel. Um, it's very sexualized in that sense. Um, yeah. We were at a mechanic shop one day because um, Ryan was, you know, uh, working on cars and really getting into that whole refined as a performer. And I showed um, uh, the costume designer. We were looking at what kind of clothing the mechanics would wear around. And I showed her Scorpio Rising, the Kenneth Anger film. And it yeah. started with his logo is a scorpion. And it was like, that's it. It's a scorpion. Yeah. And so that's really, and basically the scorpion on his jacket is just a replica of Kenneth Anger's uh, Scorpio logo from oh, his okay. film. Oh, okay. I can so get that. So uh, okay. yeah, I stole it from Kenneth you Anger, pinched you it. can say. <laughs> you pinched it from him. Yeah, I pinched it from Kenneth. It's such a kind of menacing thing. Yeah. So here's the, uh, here's the, uh, the, that that terrific um the the terrific stunt scene again i think it's so great that he's wearing that face that kind of very kind of disturbing face like an alternative face to the one that Ryan Gosling his normal face there's something so intimidatingly opaque about Ryan Gosling's performance in in this not in not all of the way through but i love the fact that he has that face that that never that uh, it, doesn't render up its meaning easily to the viewer. I think that's what I like about it. Well, I think that one of the, there are many unique things about Ryan. And, um, but obviously he's born with this, the face of a poet. Yeah. And, yeah. and you can photograph his face for 24 hours and you won't stop looking at it. Very few people have that gift and um you can probably count them on one hand through history but he certainly has it and the idea was that obviously everything that i do is about transformation because it's about a man who transforms himself into a hero right a real hero but in that transformation there are consequences because a real hero is essentially a loner. He's a singular experience. He's one vision. And that is what the transformation is really about. When he yes. finally becomes who he was always meant to be. Yeah. 
I, I always get the impression that as a character, he's always annoyed with other people letting him down, apart from Kerry Mulligan's character. He's a professional in a world where nobody is as professional as he is. Nobody has his monomaniacal clarity and ruthlessness of concentration towards what he's doing. He has a kind of almost an artist's vocation for what he wants to do. Um, well, he's an artist in a way. You yeah, say. yeah, I think he is. Uh, and he makes a kind of almost a tragic gesture of vulnerability or self-compromising in falling in love with um, falling in love with Kerry Mulligan's character. I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about Kerry's character. What I again, I'm I'm struck with it straight away. Oh, I love her hair in this movie. It strikes me, uh, rightly or wrongly. It always reminds me what I think. I, th I think of it as Lucy Pevensey hair, the character from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, a kind of vision of of sort of innocence. And it is very. I, I think of it as very English. She, she's a very English character. I think, Carrie uh, Mulligan, and I, I I love her look in this film. Yeah, I mean, I mean, first of all, if if anyone hasn't read the James Salas book, I, I right. highly recommend it. Um, it's it's I think our his book and my film are different, but they are certainly great companions at the same time because they're about illusions, you know, right. and Hollywood mythology. Uh -huh. I think the Carrie Mulligan, it, it was the it was a part that um, I spent a lot of time meeting many wonderful actresses, but. There was something that wasn't, you know, where you don't click, where it doesn't feel like, um, like this, this, this is it. Yeah. And um, my wife had actually seen uh, one of her films and talked about her. And miraculously, she happened to be in L.A. and a meeting was set up. And the minute she came to my house for us to meet, I knew it was her. And I right. think that, yes, she has that more European sense, which would help to give the film, again, it is otherworldliness because yeah. it's not typical people you would see maybe in Los Angeles the same way. There is something gentle about Carrie. There's some there's innocence there is you want to protect exactly you want that's to, that's um... what that's the for me that's that's the key to the to the what you might call the meet cute or the the the, the chemistry between them is that she is such a, a delicate character in a way she's almost like a very young judy dench <laughs> there's something fun of beautiful uh, in, in her i really liked it it's um and it works very well with the, the kind of the gallantry in a way, if I can use that term, so ironic really, but it, that's how it works really with their, their relationship. Well, it was all about because what is drive other than a love story? You know, that's, it's, yeah. a, it's what I call a teenage love story. It's, you know, you can say that, you know, the Carrie Mulligan character, you know, is like, she represents, you know, my wife, you know, and I've only had, you know, one woman in my life who became a, my girlfriend and my wife. So it is that kind of of idea of perfect love. Right. And, and, per, and to protect 
and and to cherish and and to endure as a hero what you will do for perfect love but we all know that such thing is only an illusion is an illusion well and that's yeah. why they could never end up together it's all yeah. it's a doomed relationship from the beginning but yeah. in the process the evolution of the drivers true identity is revealed yeah and here we got albert brooks albert brooks as i say i <laughs> i think it's so great i saw this movie i think the first time that i i think that albert brooks has let the the kind of malign quality that he can convey really came to its full flower in this movie in a way i keep forgetting he was in taxi driver um and i kind of was mentally brought back to that here uh but there's something in his attitude of of kind of polite discontent which simmers underneath everything and, uh, and this this scene as well is really really good as opposite brian cranston who's having to play more of a beta role than he normally would i think well i mean it, this was again like everything you get the casting right half the movie's already done yeah some of the funnest memories i have was having uh, Albert Brooks, Brian Cranston and Ron Perlman over at my house uh where I was living in LA while I was making the movie and Haas was actually staying with me as we were finishing the script and um our nights with those three actors was just like some of the funniest things I've ever experienced. I mean, and we would even, you know, we would rehearse the scenes and come up with ideas and just seeing everything unfold in front of my eyes and then of course yes. Albert Brooks just being the larger than life character that he is together yeah. with everyone else was just it was pretty spectacular. I mean, it was a fairly easy film to cast besides the Carey Mulligan uh, role everyone else i was pretty clear on from the beginning i really wanted brian cranston right because obviously i'd seen his show and and i just he was just he's such a magnificent person as an actor and albert brooks was this kind of like well who would be a great villain and what better than to <laughs> take <laughs> Uh, yeah. <laughs> somebody of his of his kind of abilities to be frightening and funny at the same time yeah. and yet be just mundane but yet there is something he's like um he's like the evil king in something yeah i mean i think he's kind of, what i love about albert brooks he always gives he can always convey that he has had his feelings hurt at some stage decades before and this is how it has evolved everything he's doing he's uh, overcompensating for some terrible hurt that he's received I, I i found myself thinking of his performance in broadcast news watching this as somebody who is a sensitive nice guy whose feelings are getting brutally trampled on and then it's as if he's kind of evolved horrifyingly into this pterodactyl of violence uh, and ruthlessness and that's why i i think he's so great in this well he's like the kind of guy you could meet at a diner in new york yeah and not be sure about what he's going to be able to do 
Yeah, exactly. And that's what makes him so frightening in the part. Yeah. You know? Very scary. And I like this idea of like of making him like a a mo an ex movie producer also because yeah. there is a whole underworld of those kind of types. Um that's why this monologue that comes later on between him and Ryan is like yeah. how he talks about the illusions of film yeah you know, which is still what the whole story is about yeah i think you should make one of his movies as a kind of i think <laughs> i, think I have it. in the older days yeah. <laughs> yeah didn't you work on yeah but i think another thing that i really enjoyed you know it's everything in in your life at that time was the combination of everything and um yes it was a very easy film to make it was um yes. it was pure pleasure in many ways and certain films can be tough and 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 exhausting but making this film was so easy it, how long did it take you how long was principal photography on it seven weeks Seven weeks, okay. Yeah. Which is, you know, not a long time in no. with all especially when it comes to, you know, stunts. And I think we had two yeah. days for each car sequence. Yeah. And uh and um and they weren't used to shooting a chronologically order um the production in LA, but um they were very respectful obviously and um again it it, it really continued to help me paint the film. As yeah. I kind of went along making it. Um, yeah. Now but, here's this scene in the in the Los Angeles River, which is a, a kind of classic location. Um, it's a classic LA scene. It reminds me of, I think, Point Blank. Is it that has the LA River? Yeah, I, mean, I think that has is it. Is there something it. you wanted to do, and you think I've got to have the LA River in this film? No, no. It was actually Ryan who said, you know, when the LA River dries up, there is these oases that pops up. Yeah, and um, we went to see it, and I was like, "Works perfect. Let's shoot it." Yeah, you and know? this scene—I think this is amazing. This bucolic, pastoral scene—it's amazing. It comes out of nowhere. Yeah, but that it's, was again it's... a thing. It was like, how do you design a, a how do you take LA, and make it into something else? Yeah, but keep it with all the magic that is Los Angeles. Yes. Um, because it's there's there's also trash around, so there's almost this kind of it's a bit it's almost like a set because it would have right. plastic and many other things. And this is a great image. We actually did a couple of years ago. Uh, El Fanning did a replica of this image together with my youngest daughter one night when we were out. I think it was after the Neon Demon premiere. We walked home and then we re replayed that image where she carried her with with her jacket <laughs> oh really <laughs> now of course okay. they have fallen in love now which... they've fallen in love and this is a this is a very intimate domestic scene mm -hmm. also another thing you know people usually don't live up high in LA so her apartment is the one of the few things that we actually built because I wanted this idea of looking out the window right because you know most places in LA, people live in houses, which is you know pretty boring to look at. When you look out the yes. window, you look into a wall yes. on somebody else's yes. yard. So 
The idea was that we found this building downtown that was guttered, and we could build her apartment up on, I can't remember what floor it was, but it, it had that view over L.A., which is mm -hmm. very much part of this idea that she lives in a castle. Right. And he's kind of moved in there with her. Yes. But in a way, it's an artificial way of living in L.A., but, you know, everyone felt it seemed very natural. <laughs> yeah. But that was, you know, again, I like this because it was an extension of what I just came from, from the Scottish mountains, which are so, you know, hypnotic and visually intoxicating to this magical oh, yeah. city that you're seeing right in front of you. It's like liquid. It's like... It's like neon liquid that just flows yeah. down, you know. And yeah, well, this is such a, a distinctive visual motif, I think, in your in your in your work, particularly the later work of, of Drive and Neon Demon and uh, Too Old to Die Young, is the the a kind of Transylvanian quality to Los Angeles. You it, you can only see it at night, and you can only see it in, in neon, and it, and it is otherworldly and uncanny. Uh, I, I I guess that's why when people actually come to Los Angeles, they are perhaps a little disconcerted to find it's actually a more banal place than they than they thought. But this is an amazingly kind of poetic view of Los Angeles, a very dark view of Los Angeles. Um, it is like a, a landscape, a fairy tale landscape, you know. And it's yeah. a word I've used so many times, but it's the yeah. best way for me to describe it, you know. And but also, how how do we tell a love story without the obvious ups and downs and so I wanted it to keep it just like a teenager's view of love you know that it's it's so perfect it's before all the mundane and the pain and the normalcy kicks in in your life yeah. the illusion of perfect love is just holding hands yes you know? um you know, there's no physical contact between them there's no sexual uh, you know, steaminess between them. It's all about this illusion of just pure what it, when you are in love for the first time, you're just walking on clouds and you don't even think physically. It's purely yeah. a mental experience. And yeah, that was the kind of love story in a way. It was like, how do I, how would I make a film describing my life with my wife? You know, that of this illusion of, of walking on clouds. Right. And here, of course, is that great monologue by uh, Albert where he talks about being a movie producer. Oh, yeah, here we European go. European <laughs> stuff. He's so yes. good at that, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Here's the line about... <laughs> a lot of people have asked why the driver talks so little. And my thought was, well, if he doesn't have anything to say, he wouldn't talk. He's, yeah, exactly. You know, it's he, like it's like Clint Eastwood or something <laughs> like that. He 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 can't say very much. It's like it's what John Wayne, how John Wayne advised Michael Michael Caine to act. He said, "You talk slow, you talk low, and you don't say very much in the first place." That because more is less. I mean, less is more. I always say less is more, and none is everything. So the yeah. little you can do yeah. it. The smaller, the more minimalistic, the better. But also, yeah. you know, there were a lot more dialogue generally, but I just I just took it out, you know, because 
even them when they fell in love the first time in her apartment when he carries up her groceries, I would just play a lot of Brian Eno music and just have them stare at each other. Right. You know, sometimes we would do like, you know, 10, 15 minutes takes of them just looking at each other, listening to... I played a lot of Brian Eno music on the film and to give that illusion of just of what it would be like, what would love sound like if you had to hear it. Um, yeah. But also, you know, if you look at the films of like Jean-Pierre Melville and how he would use um, Alain Delon, you know, it was always very much about um, um, non-verbal expressions, non-verbal movements, non-verbal actions, which, you know, if you look at the silent movies, obviously are probably still the greatest films ever made because they weren't, they weren't about the spoken word. They were about no. the illusion of emotions. You know, exactly. It's about faces. Yeah. So it's like Gloria Swanson said, "We didn't have dialogue. What we had was faces." Yeah, and it's <laughs> and it's faces. true. I I think yeah. that you know we so we today you know most entertainment is based on just relaying information to get to something yes. else to relay some more information and. And it's we forget sometimes that art is also poetry, and in a way, mm. the more that it it affects you by penetrating your guards, the more it will stay with you for many years to come. Yeah, yeah. So this is a great nighttime scene between the two. Quite a rare nighttime scene. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a great. One of my one of my obsessions is is people not putting their seatbelts on in films. I've become obsessed with this, thinking, oh boy, see no seatbelts. Nobody does that. Nobody puts their seatbelts on in films. But I, I, perhaps it's due to the fact that I don't drive. I've become obsessed with the t minor infringements of safety, mainly because I know what's coming. <laughs> it's going to be much worse than this. Well, it's always that they don't exist in a world of seatbelts. Yeah, know? exactly. Uh, Who cares? They don't have airbags. Kind of it's much worse, you know. Who cares? Another thing that I wanted to do was play the songs to its entirety. You know, I, I oh, love yeah. this idea of, of, and I remember something that, you know, from Sixteen Candles again, of how yes. long just like the use of these pop songs and, and how that would be, you know, um, a theme would be that you would play the songs basically from beginning till end all the way yeah. through. Okay. Because the music was, again, so much part of the film and, mm. you know, part of the the main crew was obviously Cliff Martinez and what he brought to the film. And he came in very late because, you know, I couldn't find a composer. And I'd never really worked with a composer that, that would compose original scores where in my past I would work with, you know, you know, um, more rock musicians or people that aren't that used to scoring from a, you know, um, symphonic point of view. Mm. And um, I have to say, you know, the missing link to really complete the full circle was Cliff coming in. As well, yeah. I think he did the music and I can't remember. We, I, I think I hired him and then four, five weeks later we were mixing. 
Right. So it was such a instinctual approach to everything. And the music kind of is the unspoken dividing line, but a connection line rather between Ryan and Carrie in these scenes. And you, you realize possibly because of the music that she's thinking about him at this moment for me. It's so easy. There's so it's the thing. It's these simple mechanisms that are as old as time that you can use to whatever you want to achieve with it. You know, mm. you have a camera, you have music, you have a face. Yeah. The origin of cinema. Yeah. For a long time. Yeah. It's really all you need. And um, I guess then we had to have a story at some point. But <laughs> I always love this thing about, you know, having been attacked multiple times by, by a certain amount of people or X amount of people or a certain type of people, which is, you know, what is good narrative. And I never understood what, like, well, who, first of all, who has the right to say what good narrative is? But the real question is, what is good narrative? When is, I mean, is it correct narrative or is it incorrect mm. narrative? Or isn't it just, do you feel something? Isn't that the most important narrative rather than, yeah. you know? I think what is challenging about the narrative of a drive is that it. what I found challenging myself why i didn't get it i think it's because it takes you away from where you think you're going to be you think it's it's not about one last job it's not about his career as a getaway driver it starts there and it takes you to a different place entirely and i think that's what that's what is part of what's interesting and challenging about drive but isn't that also what makes it interesting i mean you obviously has spent your entire life watching and listening yeah and don't you also almost wish that everything would be different sometimes all the time <laughs> all the time i'm always i'm perennially surprised by how how much the same things are i quite like things being the same but then sometimes if you find a movie which doesn't if I can put it in this pretentious way, conform to that Aristotelian idea of the unity, that it has to be within the same time in the same place, and it has to wrap itself up. It has to click closed like a musical box. And that's not what the narratives like Drive do. It starts somewhere and then heads off somewhere else and finishes there. It doesn't loop back to the beginning. It doesn't come, it doesn't, it, it's not a question of one last job or, his relationship with Kerry Mulligan or wait, is he going to be a, a famous and successful stock car driver or not? You know, what, what is his narrative? What is his career path? And drive challenges that. Um, and I think that was why I had to watch it over and over again before I kind of got the measure of it. That's if I have got the measure of it. It's interesting when you say that, because it is this idea of, of going back to, especially control and one of the beautiful things about the internet is that that control is really being demolished because narrative is so many different things now you know you know even you can say that for my own kids i can see film or even tv isn't counterculture anymore it's no longer where you seek altercation or renewal there are other forms of communication and narratives 
that are far more advanced mm. than the idea of a film or a television show. Also, a very important part of the film was pace. It had to have this, you know, calmness, consistent, just med meditative idea of movement, you know. And ironically, in today's time where everything is about speed, you know, this idea mm. that the more you can consume, the faster we can get away and do something else is like almost the enemy of creativity. Because if it's all just yeah. about consuming it, why can't we just blend it into a blender and just drink it? That'll be yeah. a lot quicker than having to sit down and actually eat the meal. Yeah. And so this idea that the more, the faster things have been desired, the more slower I become. And right. Obviously with Tool to Die Young, which was to do a 13 hour film at a pace which is so drastically anti-television was of course very intoxicating because must have been amazing it's uh, i know we're not supposed to be talking about that but I, I haven't spoken to you since since i saw those episodes in Cannes, and when i went home and sat down and binged the whole thing almost straight through um but that was another bizarre grim's fairy tale nightmare for me but we're not <laughs> we're not supposed to be talking about that but that, it's all part uh, of the same vocabulary experience. in a way you can say that you know, you can kind of divide my films up in two sections. There was the films I started with, and then there are the films that I became with. And I always right. say that I started making films for myself when I began making Bronson. And everything from then on has been films about me where maybe the films I made when I was younger were more about the illusion of what I believed a film should be, you know? Right, right. Like, like, obviously, you're also learning just by doing. You know, when I made my first film, I made it with enormous amount of arrogance because I certainly didn't know how to make a movie, but that was the mm -hmm. whole point. Yeah. And then after that, you know, I had my stumbling blocks, but those are the blocks that you need to figure out what is really within you. And um, completing the Pusher trilogy was kind of my closure of the past. It was like me preparing myself. But the question was, what was going to elevate everything forward? And mm. um, the first film I made was Bronson. And um, that was the film that Ryan saw that made him reach out to me originally. Oh, that's interesting. Because that's so different. Tom Hardy's character is so different from, from Ryan Gosling's character. Such a kind of, such a sort of voluble, kind of a show-off character, whereas Ryan Gosling's character is much cooler mm -hmm. and more internalized. So in a way, that was that began everything and then you know that took me to nottingham and then i went off in scotland to do valhalla rising but then i was transformed to suddenly being able to go to los angeles at the heart of the film right industry and make my film 
in a way similar to how I'd made my films in Europe. I, I, I had a lot of freedom and support, especially by Ryan, you know. It was a really, it was a very, very um, intimate relationship between us as, as director and star. And it was really our movie and we were making our movie the way we wanted it to be. That's the creative love story between you and Ryan, in some ways. The bromance. Yeah, if I no, can put it, it is. In that it, is way. it was a bromance, <laughs> you know, and and in a way, the only way to go from then on was to make something completely opposite, like Only God Forgives, which was a very different movie, and he would play a very different character, you know, and. Um, it was like a natural evolution to be able to do something new together because what we experienced here was so perfect that we needed to break the barriers between ourselves to rebuild it again. And, um, you know, it's like whenever time we see each other, it's always like we have this almost non cumulative idea of very soon, very soon, we'll be back. <laughs> very soon, right. we'll be back. <laughs> when the, I mean, Drive, when that was premiered at Cannes, that must have been such a big moment. I mean, I'm, I'm just guessing, but it must have been a, a, a climacteric in your life and your career, mustn't it be? The, a, Cannes, a Cannes premiere. I always thought that must be a wonderful moment because I'm not sure whether they still do it, but they're announcing the director's name before you come into the salle. I mean, well, it's what a, a very, wonderful moment. Yeah. It was, I mean, you know, prior to this film, you know, um, my films had, had, you know, very limited distribution in terms of, you know, how many cinemas they would play in and, 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 and stuff like that. And the more kind of outskirts of, of pop cinema and um but the 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 person that actually got this film going financially was a french distributor called manuel she because uh, the uh, no one would finance drive none of the studio all the studios passed on the film basically it was me ryan and this uh, film uh, based on this book you know with haas nobody wanted us no, mm. none of the studios went for it so we had to get it financed independently yeah. and uh, which I think was a good thing because it meant that I was left alone you know we didn't have any studio breathing down our neck so um, the way right. that the film was going to get financed was I had to go to Cannes and get five million dollars worth of sales and it had a sales agent right. on it um, who had basically, as you know, in Cannes, they invite all the independent distributors to some kind of gathering and you're supposed to do your song and dance on stage. And right. I had to basically show up and talk about what my film was going to be. And I was like, God, I don't even know what to say because it's a terrible thing to stand there and pitch and explain and sell in front of all these 
yeah. film people that are just staring at you and they're going off to their next meeting in 10 minutes. Anyway, so I was like, okay, how do I, what can I do in a very simple, uh, minimalistic way, get this film made? And I had the um, Manuel Xi, who had done all my previous film in France, had kind of stepped in and said that he would, that he would, he would put up a huge chunk of money for the French rights, which got the ball rolling, but we still needed to sell for the remaining. And I remember I stood up in front of these, on this podium at the Carlton actually, where they were, we were having a drink reception. And I just, we had done a teaser poster where I had found um, an engine that looked like a heart that we had taken a photo of and then we had written Drive across it. And then I stood up and I said, I just want to say that Drive is going to be like really good cocaine. <laughs> and that was it. I didn't know what else to say. <laughs> uh, but that apparently got us sold up to those $5 million and then two other companies, uh, Bold and Oddlot, were able to, to come in and put up the rest of the cash to get the film made. But when we, you know, when we, when the film was done and before we went to Cannes um, and it was kind of Manuel who introduced the film to the selection and so forth. And I met with Thierry Fomo in Los Angeles and we built a, a bond ship there. Um, I didn't know that we were going to be there until later. And it was... Uh, that night was very, very magical. Yeah. Because this is this is a movie, one of the movies I think of is that as can and this movie came together and fused into an amazing kind of whole. Uh, and it, it was nearly 10, 10, years, yeah, ago nearly 10 now, years ago. And uh, the irony was that... Um, the financiers didn't like the film. They they hated the film. No. And um, they had tried many different things, some behind my back, some to my face, in changing it. Um, but there really wasn't anything you could change because there was no material to change it with. I mean, some of the things were shot, just setups in one shot, so you couldn't even edit them, you know? So, mm. you know, I... It, yeah. you know you protect the movie by shooting the footage you need and then you can't change it oh they hated the music they disliked everything about it people wanted their names off the credits you know really you're kidding oh yeah yeah the last thing i remember before going to Cannes was the distributors of the film in the u.s screaming at me that this was going to be the biggest disaster of my career and that you know, this film is probably never going to be released, and I could take it to Cannes, so they could recut it afterwards. <laughs> and uh, I, um, I went there, and then we were selected, and then we premiered the day after. Everybody wanted their names back on the movie, and everything that had been said prior had just been forgotten and suddenly everyone yeah. was a mother yeah everybody yeah exactly it's it's not an orphan anymore when it's a success no it's 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 very um 
But it just goes to show, in a way, that most people don't really know what they're talking about when they say they know what works and what doesn't work. I just think it's such nonsense. No, of course not. It's the old William Goldman thing that, no. you know, nobody knows anything. It's, it's, uh, it's not a science. It's an art. And now we get to our actual <laughs> now car we chase, get to I guess. The car chase, yeah. With this, I want to talk about Christina Hendricks because she, she's come and gone. I mean, it was so wonderful. When you see her in this movie, this is at a time when we were all obsessed with her from Mad Men. And then she comes up and she's so different. What was your experience working with Christina? Oh, fantastic. I mean, I'd seen her in Mad Men. I thought she was great. Um, I met her. Um, I mean, everyone came by the house to meet. It was very kind of, you know, simple and easy. Um, and we, ever since, I mean, she's been, you know, in, she was also in a Neon Demon. I mean, she's... Um, she's almost like a good luck charm for me in a way. Um, I personally, I find I like her very much, but I also think she's a very good actress, and she fitted well into this world of the film. You know, she fitted well into the um, aesthetics. This was one of those classic situations where we had, you know, we had one day to shoot this. <laughs> And the sun was going down, and this was the last shot we just got before the sun would be beyond the mountain. And this was the B camera picking up the tracking shot, and and then cut to the next day. Yeah, Roger Corman said, that if you run out of light, you have to go to the top of a mountain just to get the shot. It was a very. Um, that's the thing, you know. Again, because we only had so little time to make the film, you know, you really had to go by the. By your instincts so many times which is always the best way to work anywhere you know um, but these things are very tedious to shoot like car chases are very boring to make you know technically because they're all about i mean you know they're all about editorial used usually and then it's about getting the coverage and then it's really not until you're in the post-production that you start putting it together and it's not really until you get to the sound that it starts to get interesting because so much of this is is sound really you know yeah um and then here comes this kind of this very uh, unsatisfying uh car crash um originally the car that's following ryan uh which i'd spoken with the stunt people that we they could put it basically on a ramp so it would fly from one side of the road to the other side of the road. Yeah. And so we had put up many cameras. So here, it was supposed to go across yeah. her all the way to the other side. But we had set cameras outside to capture all that. And then we only had one take to do it because I could only afford one car. Yeah. And we shot it and the car barely makes a bump. And it was like, oh yeah. my God. What do we do? There's no like finale. But then I'd put a camera inside the car and Christina Hendricks and her yeah. face became her the face climax. Is so amazing. Yeah, her face is the climax. Yeah. Her face is the catastrophe, if you can put it that way. Yeah. Her face is the uh, the denouement. Yeah. Her face is the drama. It's amazing. So thank God for Christina Hendricks. She saved that sequence that otherwise I couldn't quite figure out how we would edit ourselves out of if it hadn't been for her. So 
we're approaching one of the most shocking moments of the film or indeed of my life. <laughs> we're coming up to it now. Um, how do you feel now about, if we can start this conversation now, about the violence in the film? Because this is part of what knocked me sideways in this film, not necessarily in a bad way, but in a way that I could hardly come to terms with, uh, because it doesn't seem like a violent film until this moment in many ways. It's, it doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't say, this is a violent movie, get ready. Um, what, what were your attitudes to this scene making it? Well, you know, I'm, violence is an extension of, isn't it this arts and act of violence, you know, in a way it's meant yeah. to violate you. Um, I think that obviously physical violence is part of our human behavior. Um, and it was important for the film to go in that direction. I mean, I mean, going back to the Grimm's fairy tales, I mean, talk about mayhem and murder and torture yeah. and slaying and death and rape and sex and torture. You know, it's all been done in the past. But the film needed to have that um, sensibility to transform you into this world of the extreme. That it was this kind of uh, crescendo that that it could only go in this direction because if it didn't, then what was it? You know, it it had to show itself. It's like a painting. You know, you you can't paint half of something because you have moral complex about something else. You have to you have to go with what your heart desires, and obviously part of the film needed to have a visceral violence that was not there just to have it for the sake mm. of having it because I don't really like violent films you know I don't I'm very conscious of what I think the universe needs but if there's an emotional reason for the violence you certainly can say it's, that it's justifiable mm. but also the idea that we as people to do good violence can be a necessity even to the point of being pornographic because we all fantasize about injustice but violence being a way to cope with it to almost tear everything down that's wrong through the act of violence to build something more pure up it's like a human cycle and therefore you know art has to have that ability to go to those extremes yeah this is i whenever i think of i tend to distinguish rightly or wrongly between violence and ultra violence in the in the movies um but there's a qualitative difference between the two uh I'm not a great experiencer of violence or ultraviolence in my life. Um, I think most people, when they see, when, most people, when they think about violence, they think about violence in the movies. There isn't, a lot of people can go through their entire lives without really experiencing violence, um, they, or other than the low level violence of 
what we now call as microaggressions in our lives. But it's like watching somebody fire a gun in the movies. People watch this all the time, and yet they, most people, especially in Europe, have no idea how to fire a gun. But they, they see people lighting a cigarette or making a drink or getting in and out of a car or making a bed. And those are things that, of course, they understand because they do them themselves, and they think it applies to firing a gun. Whereas firing a gun for most people, really the pertinences of violence for most people are like that. They are impossibly bizarre and surreal and exotic in a way. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, therapy in many, you know, for some, for many, a large percentage of the world, the idea that violent, you know, as I always say, I don't necessarily believe art makes people violent, but I, sh I believe it can show people how to behave violently because we imitate yeah. what we see. But in terms of this film, the extremeness of things like with the Christina Hendricks and and this situation here, you need that visceralness. It's almost like um, it it continues to sexualize us and fetishize the aesthetics. And now it becomes almost like perverse. And perversion is obviously a part of you that is drawn to it, yet part of you is, you know, wants to pull yeah. away from it. And, you know, we're all addicted to some kind of perversion, whether we like it or not. And I certainly indulge in my perversions, not in my work life, <laughs> not at home. I'm pretty boring and obedient. Right. You know, I yeah. do what I'm told. But when it comes to work and creativity, you should indulge in your perversions and your desires and your fetish and what turns you on and what excites you because that's what creativity essentially is. Right. You know? And because, you know, there's so much horrible entertainment that's violent that has no consequences for anything. And that's even more terrifying. Yes. Well, they, nobody could say that the violence is without consequence in this film because yeah. everything in a way stems from the grammar of violence has its enactment in this in this film. But mm. it's the hero. The hero is has to be able to turn to great violent behavior in order to protect mm -hmm. the innocence, you know. And that's what a hero is, somebody who takes on the burden of having to do deeds that we would say is it's not no. human in a way. It's not normal. It's sociopathic. But again, that's yeah. what a hero is. I mean, he's he's a hero who receives so little in return for what he does. Really, he he doesn't get to have sex. I don't think he even kisses Carrie Mulligan. It's, I mean, it's almost like a Bollywood movie in that they don't. They don't have sex. They don't know. They don't sort of connect, and yet everything happens within his head. Everything is externalized in a way from him. Well, it's because the the it, the the pleasure of the it is not outside. It's otherworldly. It's the realization mm. of the ego. 
You know, to be a hero, you have to have an enormous yes. ego, an enormous amount of vanity, because it essentially is about you. Even though you say it's to protect, mm. you know, whatever you're protecting, but deep down, it's about you. And there, you know, being able to to live out your desires, almost like the sinfulness is not do as thou will. It is if you don't live out your desires, mm. you're being sinful. And so a hero lives out the desires we all wish sometimes we could experience. But it takes an enormous amount of arrogance. Yeah. You know, to do that. And therefore, obviously, a real hero lives in yeah. isolation. And he is he utterly in... isolated. I mean, there are yeah. no, he has no ties. Yeah. He has no other things. If you look at the great, you know, comic books, you know, heroes or, you know, other literature and so forth, you know, loneliness was always the flip of what it would be yeah. to be a leader or to be a protector. There mm. is a sense of isolation. The same with the creativity. Creativity is a very isolated experience in a way. It's a very, you're very, um, you're very much yes. alone. And it's a, it's a world of solitude. Is that how you feel making a film? Are you aware of solitude or are you aware of collaboration? Well, I think that the collaboration is part of the process. I think that, you know, when you make any art form that takes more than one person to be part of, it's a collective environment. And I always say directing is really easy. You just have to inspire everyone else to give their best, you know. And I just, I just have this need that in the end of the day, it's just always about yeah. me. Because that is how I can only see the world from my perspective when it comes to creativity, you know. But I can't accomplish it alone. I need actors, I need camera people, I need production design, editors, you know, and stuff like that. I need money. <laughs> I've chosen a very expensive art form to indulge in. But, you know, in a day, you're only the audience of one. But if you don't have the people around you and you can lead them and inspire them and work with them, you know, um, um, the creative process is a fluid thing. It's almost like who has the best idea is gets to win the uh, the lottery of how we achieve things but it still has to be programmed and achieved so that is a very lonely how old were you do you think when you realized that you could do this that you could inspire people to make a movie was that something that you were you like were you a teenager? Were you in your twenties? What? How? When did that? When did that realization enter your into your mind? Well, I think it's something you have to ask my mother. But when I told my mother that I was going to make my first film, which was Pusher, that I made when I was twenty-four, 
she wasn't very surprised. No. Um, but I think it also comes from, you know, I'm very dyslexic, you know, and, and you know, having grew up in New York without, you know, coming to America without speaking English and having to go through all that nonsense. It's in a way your life is about turning your weaknesses into your strength. And I I grew up in, you know, in the 80s in New York and I've always felt I don't really have a talent. I can't really do anything very well. But I realize that I I have um I have the attitude and I have the vanity and I have the megalomania and I have all the things that it takes to create. But I don't have a technical skill, but that's okay because that's not really what creativity is about. Creativity is about you exposing yourself through whatever you do, complete and utterly, so that you know, growing up in New York at that time and, you know, when the idea of, you know, of, you know, of fame culture and, you know, post-70s, the punk movement had been over, you know, um, everything, the yuppies had taken over, it was more glamorous and stuff like that. The idea that you could become the artwork. Yeah. Maybe I maybe technically couldn't make it, but I f if I could become it, mm -hmm. then that was really my desire. I didn't want to photograph it or edit it. I wanted to become it. Kind of Warholian design in a way. I remember meeting Andy Warhol when I was like oh, really? 16 in New York. Yeah, yeah. I was Where a big was club this? kid back then. So in Not in Studio 54, surely. No, no, no. It? That was before my time. I remember oh, I was like the Danceteria area. And oh, Danceteria. I've been to Danceteria like once. Yeah, I went there once. Yeah. <laughs> I started going there. It was like, God, I don't know, 15 or something. So this scene here, the elevator scene, it was originally going to be taking place somewhere else in the um, downstairs in the garage. It just wasn't very exciting. And I had this idea of the kiss. Because oh, we've never seen kiss them kiss. Yes. And I wanted it to be the first kiss and the last kiss. You're because right. it was so important right. that there was never anything physical between Carrie Mulligan and Ryan Gosling. That it was the illusion of love. It was right. Un it was it was it was not about the flesh. It was about the clouds. And so if he could turn around and kiss her, knowing that this is the point of no return, now he's almost like he's choosing his true path, which is to become what he was meant to be, which was a real hero, as the song says. Mm. And, you know, we had set this up. I had this, I'd had this idea many many years ago about this about the, the 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 illusion of lights dimming and stuff like that i think i stole it from an Antonio scola movie that i saw when i was very young with my mother that did the same tricks um you know we're all thieves and so the idea was that they would they would you know they, that, 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 that 
lights would dim and then he would turn and he, and he would kiss her. Right. And, and then turn around and then become who he was really meant to be, which is the sociopathic, arrogant, self-absorbed, narcissistic idea of what a hero is also. So here you go. Say hello to the driver. This is yeah. This is this is the moment. I remember where... I called up Gaspar Noy when I had to do the head smash because he had done it yeah. reversible. I was, was, was like... going to ask you about that because he was the, he's the maestro of the of the head smash. Yeah, like Gaspar, how did you do it? And then he kind of talked me through it. And I never felt we we never. I mean, his is obviously more just better. But then I was like, but Gaspar, I got a kiss in. You didn't. So, you know. Yeah. <laughs> of course. I mean, I can't believe I forgot that. But I think maybe because I'm, my my mind is so blitzed by the violence in the movie that that, that I sometimes don't focus on those, those tender moments which are immediately obliterated or, or juxtaposed with these shocking scenes. Uh, but yes, Irreversible is very different. There was something very... I mean, that was a very cocaine film, to be honest with you. That oh, is it's fantastic. Yeah. That's a, that's a movie I, I can't... I, I kind of like Enter the Void better than Irreversible now. Um, it's, uh, it's, I it's just love act. everything about Gaspar. You know, I love that yeah. he exists, you know, really. You yeah. Know, there. So it's just very inspiring. Here was like... Uh, this was like a typical editorial thing where we were like trying to figure out like myself and Matt Newman. So Matt Newman, I should maybe just mention, uh, edited this film. He edited every movie I've made since Bronson. And he is like, um, he's the first person that whenever I do anything, I kind of call him up and I tell him what my plans are. And he, he stays with me all the way through the process in post-production he does the grading with me because you can actually tell the graders what i want it to look like because when you don't know colors you don't know how to blend it so he has to tell them how to blend it so i can see it um right but matt's been with me ever since and then of course cliff joined the team on drive and then we became a trio but a lot of it was how do how did we keep the fluidness of the story about the driver's narrative entangling to what was more like a plot-driven storyline that along the way I had kind of just um, dismantled pretty right. much, you know, um, to making it just essentially about highlights. The film is almost like a combination of just highlight scenes. There's no really connective tissue and whenever it is, it's usually about movement and about, you know, the driver moving between these um, pockets of emotions. It was like, if Albert Brooks was the evil king, then Ron Perlman was the dragon, you know? But he is the dragon. I mean, yeah. he's the... He's he is there's something amazing about his face but he is like a kind of monster oh he's so good we talked about i have this plan i haven't done it yet it's been 10 years in the making that uh brian uh, ron and i was gonna do a um basically me filming him playing rich the third reading the phone book <laughs> as richard the third because <laughs> 
he could do it so well to my face. I'm years old, Bernie. Yeah, he's pinching my cheeks. Fantastic. <laughs> but that those nights with those three guys, Albert, Ron, and Brian, were just like hysterical, you know. Especially like at 3 a.m. <laughs> it got yeah. really weird. <laughs> I also think that a lot of your experience is about making, doing things at the right time. And, you know, this was just a right time in, in everything around me, you know. I remember at Cannes, every time there was like a bloody murder, people would applaud. Yeah. I don't get that. I don't get people being cool about violence i've never understood it i've never understood this thing of people laughing and thinking it's cool i mean i i if you agree with it or don't agree with it i always think that is not my reaction to violence no i don't like it either i don't i don't i don't i don't that's you know i i don't i don't like ironic irony in violence i don't like to laugh at people being hurt no but then i never laughed at the three stooges you know i i would laugh at you know, Buster Keaton or Charles Chaplin, but I don't like watching people going through pain and then making fun of it. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I I, always remember, that I read something, uh, I think Don DeLillo says that America is the only country in the world with funny violence. And I, I think I get that, but I never wanted to express the idea of comedy, certainly in a movie theater, I've never, I've never felt like laughing, even if I felt nervous and I wanted to laugh it off. I never understood. It. Although I think I understand what Don DeLillo means, uh, I think it's something that I find very intimidating, and I, and I, I always feel my most alienated. Not necessarily from a movie, but from a movie audience when something like that happens. No, I agree with you. I, I think that's a very good point. I think that for this film, I think what people were reacting to was the sexualization of it, that they were they were excited by it. It it, it they they enjoyed the hero's pathway to what he was becoming or the um Yeah. The operatic sensibility to them you know but it was pretty weird sitting there hearing people you know cheer every time <laughs> yeah this scene we rehearsed remember at like 2 a.m of how um because i couldn't quite figure out how you know alba was going to kill brian and then we were talking about it at the house, which is another great way to work is, you know, bring your actors over and, you know, talk to them about, you know, if there are things you're, you can't quite figure out, let's, you know, you know, bring them in on that, you know, odyssey. And, um, you know, uh, them, you know, looking at each other, performing mm. and trying it out, and this idea of the, of the slicing of the arm, you know. Mm. I had this idea of this kind of, like, gentleness. It had to... Mm. a mercy kill, almost. Yeah. This is such a great scene for Albert. I mean, it, there's a horrible, mo violent moment again, but I love the, I love the timbre of his voice here. Mm. Yeah, I, yeah, it's a shame I haven't worked with Albert since. Um, 
It's uh, yeah. you know, you have these. It's this thing with movies. You 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 have you go through these very intimate experiences, and then you um, you you promise each other that you will work again, and yeah. then like you never will. So I haven't seen this movie since I saw it at Cannes. Really. Because I don't like to watch my own films when I'm when they're done. Like once I'm, you know, technically done with them, they make you s sit through them at the premieres. You know, um, I just usually sit there with my eyes closed. Um, Do you? I've often wondered that actually. I get terrible. I I don't. Some people love it. I I, I admire that if people love it. This is actually in the same building that uh, this apartment. Um, was in the same building as Christina was living in at the time. That's how I found the apartments. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's it's strange to see this film again because there's so many memories of we'll meet again someday, and I just haven't had time to uh, to even the photographer Thomas Newton Siegel, who I loved working with, you know we've never been able to reconnect again and it was such a wonderful experience the music coming up here was um there's italian um director team in the uh, 70s called uh uh, was it Giacopetti and can't remember the other guy's name, but they would make these Mondocani movies from the sixties. Oh yes, and they worked, I think, until the early seventies or mid seventies, late seventies. I don't really know, but their their use of music was always very fascinating. I felt, and so this this track here was from one of their older movies. Waltiero Giacometti. Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, it, 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 it has this Italian romanticism. Yeah. And that's what's great about Italy in general. It's just everything is just so heightened, you know. Yeah. And, uh, and just this kind of music, um, this almost... Ageless. It's like another age it takes yeah. place in. And here we're going to see Ron Perlman laughing, which is such a kind of sensational sugar rush moment in the film because you couldn't, I couldn't have predicted this scene. I couldn't have predicted, I couldn't have guessed at this scene. Well, it was one of those things. It came on to set. Ron was like, So what should I do? And I was like, Just do a lot of laughing. Yeah. And then, you know, obviously because, you know, Ryan has now put on his... Put on his weird his face. Alter, his alter ego, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think we had some X-rated actresses as well in this scene to really um, color it. Oh, yeah. 
Where a lot of people have asked, like, can there ever be a part two? Can there ever be a continuation? And a lot of, you know, some people really wanted it. But I was going to even... ask you about making the making the, the, the James Alice's own. Yeah, sequel, he he book. he did a book. Uh, I never read it, uh, but I at the end of the day, you know, it's like you know his book and and my film are even though they're similar, they're very different. And I'd written a treatment for a, a continuation, but at the end of the day, it just felt wrong. You know, right. I, 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 you know, Ryan and I discussed it numerous times, but certain things are better left as they are. And, and, um, you know. Also, this this experience is is untampered with. It's 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 its own thing. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God! This is <laughs> this is another nerve wracking. We had one one way to shoot this scene. Yes. One take and actually Thomas is one second too late with the camera you know booming up but it's fine we were working so fast I remember they were still trying to sell the movie while we, while we were shooting it to you know make back their money which was like peanuts I always find it so ironic that these people are so rich that has these financing companies that they're worried about like a like what's considered like probably like a um you know pennies for them i would presume yeah i guess it's not about the money i guess it's about the it's about the power of uh, <laughs> it's the, it's all about the negotiation and obviously you can say that the driver is on his own mission and his own path now to and you you know how can a hero ever return yeah you know you can't it's it's you know once you've passed that line yeah it's the point of no return has kind of gone and mm. it's interesting to look back and see w at what stage has he gone past yeah. what's when has he definitively lost the idea of uh, that he's doing something for a particular purpose to to reclaim something which he's lost or something and now we're just it's pure action now. it's pure kind of execution it's pure fetish it's pure eroticism you know pure fetish i think yeah it was actually ryan's idea to do because of you know having put this scorpion on his back um and 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 you know stealing it from Kenneth Anger that he came up with this idea of of the story of the frog and the scorpion to kind of tell that in this specific situation which I thought was just yeah you know pretty spot on <laughs> exactly I mean that's what we're talking about. The scorpion stings the frog for no reason other than the fact that that is what a scorpion does. The scorpion does not expect to gain anything by it. The scorpion has no game plan. 
And that's why he is, you know, he's on his path. That's why if we ever, you know, were to do a continuation, it would just... I think the, the, the imperfection of the movie and the time it was made with the people that it was made within, you could never duplicate that and you would fail to try. So better, better move on to other things. Better to move on to other things, yeah. And you can say the extension of this character that, of the driver, um, moves into the lieutenant and only God forgives. So yeah, Mats Mikkelsen plays him in Valhalla Rising and Ryan plays him in Drive, and then Vatire plays him in Only God Forgives. Yes. You can even see, and there's even a hint of it, or in a way, actually, probably not even a hint, it's full out there of when, you know, Elle Fanning's character in The Neon Demon is an extension of the same kind of iconography. Yes. Of, um, of a certain type of, of character that, you know, is disconnected from the world yet exists within it. Yeah, and I think perhaps Miles Teller and and um, Too Old to Die Young that that sort of dis that kind of anti gravitational thing that happens when they're detached from the world and they float over it in a way they float through it. Uh, that that happens in the Bangkok of mm. Only God Forgives and the LA of of this and Neon Demon and. And um, too old to die young. It's kind of like um, it seems to be a character that creeps into everything I do, you know. And it's, it's, it's. I think I'll probably, uh, I'll be, I will finish with them, <laughs> or with with it. Now that's both been played by a man and a woman. was another like one of those last crazy days I think we had one day to shoot this scene plus the th scene outside and I was like oh I was like having a nervous breakdown because you just had that tick 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 ticking clock and that must um, be so stressful making a film oh. I imagine that there's time the pressure is time presumably at this stage you having to it's always like that because you know there is only what is there you know and I'm you know I like I like details so it's all about the details you know you can't just have people come up and say something so actually editorially this scene was supposed to happen and then outside there will be a whole other sequence where he would where they would fight right but because of time and the sun going down we weren't able to really fulfill the ambitions so Matt and I were like hmm what do we do and so this idea of intercutting it actually became the um, the, um, the, uh, the savior <laughs> of putting it all into a higher crescendo and then the idea was that the only killing that you would never see 
was the Albert Brooks killing, and that's why it's all in shadows. Because it's the one you expect to see, but it's the only one you will not see. This is the most western part of the film, I think, for me. There's something parched and desert-like quality of the asphalt here. It's Los Angeles. It's that yeah. weird city that's built on a desert. Yeah. And you can see the sun is going down. Mm. It's weird when you make something that you don't, you forget about. Because I always feel like whenever I'm done with something, it becomes dead space. Yeah. At least for me, you know. It 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 no it it's no longer. It, it you kind of detach yourself from it. But when you when you see it, you see yourself in it as if it was as I was still making it, it's like having children, you know, like your children grow up and and detach themselves from you. But when you see them, it's like they're still little. They're still at an infant stage. And, and in, I think it's so important never to forget that because, you know, I always say the, the results are 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 nothing because you live through the process. It's the experience of making it that that makes you remember and all you have in your life are your memories. Yeah, I always said you know when it's time for your. For, for you to go into the next world and God were to ask you was it fun if you have great memories you can say it was a lot of fun because you know that's all you have the only thing we actually ever went back and, re and added another scene was the money and that was the French distributor Manuel Xi again who was the first to see the finished film editorially, like we were done in the Avid, and he was like, what about the money? And I was like, yeah, isn't that cool? Like, we don't talk about the money anymore because who cares about the money? But he's like, yeah, but it's been for all this money. What happened to the money? Yes. And I was like, that's an interesting point. And then we actually uh, went out and and just shot that one setup where Albert is lying there with, uh, with, with the, the cash. Yeah. yeah. But in a day, it's not what people remember. They remember the love. Yeah. No, that's true. It's true. It's like the end of the treasure of the Sierra Madre, with it. You know, the the gold is just swept away, and it's just that the the gold is the least interesting thing part at the very end. Because it's a love story, and yeah, I think that was really, you know, I'd never done a love story before this film, so you can say this was the first time. I ever did that and now I can continue to do other things. 
Yeah. <laughs> On to the next project. I think that's what it's all about. You know, it's all about experiencing life while you have the opportunity with all the with all the with all the um, ups and downs that comes with life at the end of the day I take great pride in you know it was a lot of fun and this film was a lot of fun and, and this is uh, the first time you've really watched it since since then yeah i haven't seen it right. since and how do you how would you describe your emotions right now in, in having watched it well you it's almost like you have a melancholy feel because you remember back to all those great hours um you know it was my first time coming to la to work you know it's the mm. best way to come into Hollywood is to make a movie and yeah I made the movie the way I wanted to make it so I can only say that you know what is there is mine um, I met great people but it's it's like I just the the thing that I remember the most was that I had rented a house and it had an orange tree and a swimming pool. And I remember my my mom came to visit a few times. And she goes, wow, you're so lucky you have an orange tree. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I do. That's pretty cool. So you are... Are you, are you resident right now in Copenhagen? Are you are you going back to LA soon to make another movie, or is it? Are you back in Europe now for for a while? I like being in Denmark right now because if you're going to be somewhere, you know, being in Scandinavia. <laughs> yeah. Um, but <laughs> all you can do is prepare. Yeah. So that's all we're we're. I'm doing is just preparing, what other things and as I said you know film is almost like or TV is, is there's so many other outlets of creative motions that you can do that are you know so it's like everything is a new canvas it is and I, I wish I could live another hundred years yeah don't we all <laughs> just to experience <laughs> yeah. it yeah yeah, yeah. You know, with the digital revolution, I always say, you know, in a way, we're just we're just about putting the horse carriage on the horse. Yeah. Imagine yeah. when we get to the airplane. Yeah. What we can do. That's true. That's true. We we are living in a pre-cinematic age, as Peter Greenaway told me. This is the pre-cinematic age. Nothing we're doing is cinema yet. Thinking, well. That's interesting. And I'm from the future, so I know what I'm talking about.